welcome to Directly Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Igor Menezes, Associate Professor at the University of Hull Business School. Thanks to our sponsors, Polynode. Harness the full power of organizational network analysis with Polynode. With one-click data integrations and built-in relationship-based surveys, Polynode enables people analytics practitioners to move from data to insights faster. To learn more and see why Polynode is trusted by some of the most innovative companies in the world today, book a demo at polynode.com slash directionally correct. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. I don't, do you actually use them? Like, because I, I sent a kissy face emoji to my director and he thought that was funny as hell. <laughs> as, like, what? how do you even react to that, you know? Well, I, I send emojis just essentially acknowledge that uh, I got your message and uh, don't have anything actual verbal to say. So like my, my go-to is the whale like blowing water. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. If someone like one. does something for me, like I'll give them a, uh, the arm, the, the muscle arm, like you just did. Like the arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. I'll do a cowboy with the hat, a little smiley face with the cowboy with the hat sometimes. I'll do a dinosaur. Just roll up on a brontosaurus. No reason, no logic. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how to react to something. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, fine. You, you know, the the whole of my game is like the gambit of emojis. Like, you know, you get three in a row that actually means a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Igor, do you use emojis to communicate, or are you mostly just a a text uh, old school person? I use some emojis to communicate, yes. Mostly the laugh face. Yeah. Never sad face is always something <laughs> that's more related to I don't know what it is or just a laugh face. So would you say you're never sad or you just never use the sad face? I think it's a kind of British thing that I learned of not using sad faces or not just or just trying to keep what they say stiff up a lip. <laughs> so not show emotions or something like this. You don't want to put bad something. vibes out in the universe, right? No, we can do it. Yeah. I'll do the praise hands. This little action. That's a good one. I think one. the praise hands is a good one. Yeah. There's another one, which is also something like this. Oh, the pray. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. The pray. Yeah. Which has two meanings actually. So it could be someone just spraying or someone just saying, okay, just you know, <laughs> count on me or something like this. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the thing, like, the, the meanings change so much. We were talking earlier, like, if you give someone a thumbs up, apparently yeah. that, that's hyper aggressive. That's not good. To Gen yeah, Z. It depends they, on they the culture. Like it, do you know that it depends on the culture? Because if you do a thumbs up in Brazil, that seems okay, that's fine, that's okay, you can, can go, go ahead. So, but here in the UK, they don't usually do it. So, even when you are just driving your car, and if you want to say, okay, thank you, if you say yes, something like this, they look strange to you, but you just have to say something like this, but not thumbs up. So it's a cultural <laughs> thing, actually. Even just uh, waving in your car at somebody is, is like culturally, in, in Texas, if someone does not wave at you after you like let them in, <laughs> I will fucking murder them. <laughs> <laughs> that is an affront. In Seattle, That's they, they don't. the same here. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. People would Is rather that... see you like die in the streets and like g say thank you to you. Actually, actually sometimes you just give it a passage so as you can get, can have a thank you. So you're expecting <laughs> them to react to your yes. gesture of, of, of good gesture. So that's exactly what we do. So if they don't do it, we just, you know, look at this way. I'm, I'm yeah. already thinking of like a uh, psychometric emoji assessment that you can build. A culturally appropriate emoji assessment. I wonder what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> it depends yeah, if it comes from recruitment. Like? If, if it comes yes, from recruitment yes. selection, perhaps the candidates will not give some very good emoji. So they will <laughs> <laughs> like, be very thing? different from yeah, like, are, are you just receiving the emoji? Are you giving the emoji back? Like the appropriate response to these situations? It should be a two-way street, isn't it? Yeah. No words. Culturally <laughs> insensitive. Insensitive. Well, how would one create such an assessment, Igor? <laughs> That's a good question. 
I, I've seen a few people use emojis, like scale response, like it scales, but instead of, instead of using text, like strongly disagree to strongly agree, they use emojis. But I agree with Scotty, it could be very, very culturally sensitive. And I don't think that people would react the same way. That's quite funny. Even the, the scales and the way that you express yourself, for example, if it's in a Chinese culture, they probably have a different face. So it, the expression, the facial expression will not be exactly the same as we express yeah. here, for example, in the Western world. So yeah, I, I don't think that's gonna work that way. But it's good that you mentioned this call because I think that yeah, images are quite good for assessments, but of course uh, they are, as Scott said, they are cultural sensitive. So we need to be very careful of what images you're, you're using and how to select these images connected to cultural aspects among other things yeah well like davila says like the first step is just clearly define your construct and you get you get to move on from there right exactly yeah but even when we, when you define very clearly the specifications matrix in your construct sometimes when you develop the items the items are far away from what you have imagined so, and then what you, you have to do is to either tweak the items or trying to do something which is much more cross-cultural or trying to do some cross-cultural studies that you, you try to see whether other, other cultures and other contexts would also perceive in the same way. So that would be another option. That's something that we usually do. So we're trying to see my research, for example, what I'm doing, one of my studies is actually trying to work with images. Uh, so we develop an image-based personality test. And then we we are trying to create a kind of text alignment uh, with the images using AI mode models, uh, which means that if you want to create an image, let's imagine that you want to create an, an image of a tree, a very colored tree, which is quite abstract, metaphorical, subjective. Yeah. So the question is, how can you associate this image with a text that conveys openness to experience, for example. So like, so what, would, what, what, would, what would that look like? So you're presented with an image and you have to select a written statement that conveys what's going on in the image? Is that what I understand? Not really, no, no. It's like a standard item. Yeah. So we have an item that would go, uh, what picture describes you the best, something like this. And then you have to choose the picture alongside the text that comes with the picture. Oh, okay. So okay. You're not you're not only allowing them <clears throat> to use the pictures because the problem of using pictures, other companies, for example, do this. Uh, so we, we've seen this in the visual DNA and, for example, the Red Bull Wing Finder. So they also use only images. But the problem that we have seen is that pictures in people interpret pictures in different yeah. ways. So if we take, for example, the first picture of visual DNA, they show, oh, what pictures amaze you or something like this. And then you have the image of a motherboard, someone in space, <laughs> someone just talk to each other, someone with a remote control. And you say, okay, but what is actually measuring these pictures? Because I could understand and say, okay, I'm gonna choose the motherboard because I work with AI models or I come from computer sciences background and that's relevant to me, but not necessarily because I'm expressing my personality traits and my personality uh, based on that specific picture. But if you say, uh, and if you create an item in which the situation would convey an idea of openness to experience and then you present the, 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 the tree, in this tree, this color tree would be related to something like, uh, I leave my imagination, runs away with me, or something like this. Yeah. Then you can make connections between the text and the picture. Because you know exactly how to control the stimuli. Yeah, I mean, that's where something like situational judgment tests or, you know, these sort of like narrative assessments may have the benefit over, say, a text image where a person gets to essentially make that up in their mind, right? They can tailor exactly, yeah, that yeah. paragraph to themselves. But I mean, like, we are entering a world of AI generated images. We're already in a place where we don't know anything that's real. You go online and like everything looks real, but hell, who knows what the percentage is. But I mean, that opens up all sorts of possibilities for the sort of assessments you're talking about. Exactly. By the way, have you seen Sora? So they just launched it. Uh, no. The OpenAI just launched a new 
yeah. a text to video uh, way of creating one minute videos and it's it looks quite quite real so it's text really difficult to, video. to tell Correct. text to video yeah it's really oh, difficult yeah. to tell the the real from the the fake so it's really really difficult now so of course yeah that's a new frontier so we can simply ignore it but yeah yeah it is what it is uh, i think i have kind of like a countercultural take on that though um it, so one of the things that I was so pleased about with the advent of generative AI and these, you know, large language models and then the transformers behind them is that they were taking what was previously happening in kind of the digital world and finding real world applications for how that might make things better. And what I'm fearing now with this introduction uh, introduction is they're just going the full digital route of like yeah. You know, you know how like every iPhone that gets released, the only thing that gets better really is the camera. And it's just so you can take better pictures so that you can be cool in the digital world, yeah. but not in reality. Um, like yeah. they're going the route of like, well, we'll just create, you know, uh, you can create your own videos and your own, you know, things that are happening off in the digital world. But I was like, well, what are the real world applications of this? And if, unless you're in the media or entertainment industry, I actually think exactly. that they're quite yeah. limited. I was going to say this. Unless... Unless all the, I mean, this was the whole criticism around Web3 when that was a big thing is like to, for Web3 to be successful, everybody has to decamp from the, the real world and say, all of my life is now in the digital world. And that's how it's going to be, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not thrilled and excited about that future. No, I'm not either. So I think if you do this for marketing purpose, or if you are also working the gaming industry, I think. When I first saw it, I thought, okay, that's good for a game because we can yeah. try to repli replicate games. Games are not actually real life scenarios. So we can see that we are playing a game. So when you see, for example, uh, as you call it, soccer, football, for example, when you see the, the game, so it's not the same as, as if you were in a stadium. But now with these real life images, at least you can have this feeling of being in a real life scenario, being really in a stadium. So I think it's just the only, the only benefit, honestly, that I can see. So far, I haven't reflected much on this. I'm starting to think that we're all bamboozled by this AI. Like, I was told that it was going to take off, you know, take all my mundane tasks and allow me to, like, paint and be creative. And, like, the first fucking thing it does is paint and be creative way better than I can do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yep, I'm, I'm right there with you, Scott. Like, I think... I, I want to be that guy. Why are you doing it, AI? Well, and it's about where people, because like these are not accidental decisions. These are conscious decisions that businesses are making yeah. to where they focus their efforts. I really wish they would have focused more on the mundane task. Like that's where we need it. That's where humanity needs it. But it's like, oh no, let's just be better at creative tasks than any other human being that could ever exist. It's, like, well, it's probably the same reason that Apple focuses on building a better camera, right? That's what it sells. Yeah, yeah, but I think uh, it's open AI. It's not, uh, if I'm not mistaken, as a non-profit organization. So at least Apple is a private company, so they can justify what they do. But open yeah. AI, AI isn't. <laughs> yeah, now we're really wading into like the whole governance structure <laughs> of open AI because that's a very controversial issue in itself. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm curious, Igor. You you have a fascinating background. You know, you moved from Brazil to the UK. You're a professor at University of Hull, and you're you have you've created an online master's in people analytics there, which is a pretty rare thing. There's not many of these programs out there. Um, like how? Why? <laughs> like what, what 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 motivated you to do all of this and and kind of because you're clearly on the bleeding edge of what's going on in terms of research assessments ai and the like why you know have you graduated from people analytics do you still love it like what's going on <laughs> so i think it's difficult to find someone who graduated from people analytics because you're quite young field but I usually tend to define people analytics as a kind of combination interdisciplinary approach uh, that brings uh, knowledge from different areas, for example, organizational psychology. And honestly, most of the things that we used to do in the past that people analytics now do, uh, it used to be called organizational psychology. It would be under this umbrella. But yeah. now we are calling this people analytics as well. But I understand people analytics as this interdisciplinary field 
that brings knowledge from organizational psychology, statistical models, uh, other areas such as human resource management. Uh, yeah, pretty much anything that you can work on the organizational settings could be related to people knowledge, because including AI and also machine learning models, among other things. But yeah, but you're right. So it's quite unusual. Uh, what happened? Just bring back a little, a bit of background. So that just dates back to 2019, when I I just got posted here at the University of Hull. And then I came up with this idea of having new programming people analytics because I was trying to look around this region and I couldn't find any programs, anything on human resource management that would be related to people analytics. And the CIPD uh, was already discussing these things as the Charter Institute here for Personal Development in the UK. They were discussing all these things about people analytics, but there were no initiatives in this area. That's when I brought this idea to how I discussed to them, and I said, I'd like to create a new program that would be an on-campus program in people analytics. So the initial idea was not to have an online program. But then the pandemic hit in 2020, uh, and it was quite funny because they were already discussing the possibility of having an online program instead of on-campus. And that's when we decided altogether just to move the program and say, okay, let's do it an online program and let's try to uh, bring aspects from other fields and make a combination that could uh, suit more smoothly into something which relates organizational psychology and organizational behaviors, human resource management practices, psychometrics, because one of the modules is also psychometrics, predictive modeling, and let's try to put them all together into a new program that would be a part-time program running for two years. Yeah, and we'll be offering this across the board to any student that would like to take this around the board. So that's exactly one of the ideas, but things happen, I would say, a bit incidentally. So, I, of course, I had this idea, but the pandemic uh, made a, a big decision. So that's exactly what happened to make the decision to create uh, the program. I think it's, it's super forward thinking because uh, people are going to need a combination of skills moving forward. You used to be able to be an HR generalist. You used to be able to just know research methods or just be stuck in your data science world. But I mean, we, we can talk about the uh, advent of AI or generative AI, et cetera. But people are going to have to be more multi-skilled moving forward. And I think this program just really gives people a good leg up. Yeah, so we have had very good feedback from the students, so everyone who leaves the program. Actually, it's the program with the highest satisfaction rate among all of the whole line programs. So we've got uh, very good students as well coming from different parts of the world. So you, for example, interviewed Nico Lechich, uh, who comes from NASDAQ. So we've been, yeah, 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 yeah. We've been working together on the project. Yeah, so she's also great in what she's doing. Yeah, but we've got very nice students. You're right, Scott. So, and yeah, that's pretty much what we're doing here. Well, were you the one that introduced her to the psychometric network analysis work that, that she that's she me. talked about with us on the podcast? Youth is charged. <laughs> yes, youth is charged. Nice. So yeah, one of the things, yeah, as I said, one of the modules is in psychometrics. And what I try to do is always to bring innovation to the module. So we've got, of course, IT response theory has been around for quite a while now. But psychometric networks is a big new thing in the field of organizational psychology and in organizations. And then we introduced this to organizational psychology 2019. Uh, we start to work with some uh, engagement research and data that were, we collected it. We didn't collect actually, but we've gathered data on more than 1 million workers in Brazil. And then we analyzed this data set uh, use a machine learning approach. So all of these things about splitting the data into trainings, has data sets. So we did it. So as we could run these two models and compare the two psychological networks to check what variables are the most influential within the network and also what characteristics would stand out as the most important ones. Uh, it turns out that engagement, so spoiler alert. So turns out that engagement comes up as the most important and relevant characteristic within the network. And it was a network of more than, I remember, uh, 50 or 50, 60 items. Yeah, which is also another complex 
complex things in, in psychometric networks because if you have many nodes and many items, things start to get a bit difficult to, to estimate. So if engagement matters the most, do you remember what mattered the least? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I can remember. Yeah. His, his last his lasso regression reduced that beta to nothing. <laughs> it don't matter. But I, I, I don't I don't think people realize just the power of these causal attitude networks, the psychometric network analysis as a tool for the future. You know, typically we're stuck with like mean uh, like, OK, engagement of 4.5 and say like psychological safety of 4.42, which is better. Hard to say. But when you can actually identify the uh, interconnectedness of the actual items and see their growth over time, you can generate hypotheses around. What does your attitude network look like when you first enter the organization? What does it look like after 10 years in the organization? The structures look yeah. different because of all the knowledge that you have and the experiences, et cetera. And the things that mean different things to people at different stages of their career. And th this gives you a perfect opportunity to uh, develop interventions and actually attack issues in ways you couldn't in the past. It's really exciting stuff and people don't realize it yet, but it's coming. That's quite relevant to what you said, Scott, because there are so many aspects related to that. For example, in the past, when we did organizational climate research, we usually tend to, honestly, still nowadays they do the same in a few companies, but they only present the bot plots with all yeah. of these means. But let's imagine that, for example, we have benefits and bene people are not happy with the benefits provided by the company. But the thing is, how likely is benefit to influence all the variables within the network? Yes. So if benefit's not something that is important, so why should we change or try to fine tune uh, benefits? Perhaps there is something more important that would be much more influential within the system than, for example, benefits. And that's exactly what psychometric networks would provide with. And the other thing that you said is quite interesting is about dynamical systems. Uh, so psychometric networks can also model these dynamical systems. So we can understand and take a picture of the network now, understand the topology of the network, which would be the structure of the network. But after a while, after even six months, you can also collect the data again, use the same team, the same information. Then you can also compare the results before and after. Because as you said, people are dynamic, so they won't necessarily show the same results. Yeah, that, that uh, dynamic flow or cascading nature of attitudes is really critical. So like when you're, when you're first in an organization, your manager is super key uh, or, or the team around you. Uh, and that'll, that'll influence how you feel about the psychological safety. That'll influence how you feel about just like organizational support, all these sort of things. Ten years in, uh, maybe you don't really care so much about what your manager thinks because you already know all the transactive memory of the organization. And that doesn't impact with the way you feel about the organization or the, the psychological safety that you have. These are things which is really, really powerful for attacking issues once again. Yeah, even for organizational culture, perhaps the organizational culture has changed a few aspects because new people has, has arrived and they're bringing you yeah. new, new, new culture, new ideas, new you know, innovation. And then you are not modeling exactly the same system. So that's why systems are quite dynamic and that's important that you model this at different points in time. Yeah, when I think about this, I, you used the example of benefits earlier. <clears throat> is there a part of this when you're looking at this through a causal lens, right? That um, I think about like the two factor theory of like hygiene and motivators, right? Yeah, I always yeah. saw that That's benefit right, yeah. and things like that. These are just hygiene factors um, that have to be taken care of. But once you meet the factor, I, I always look at like kind of like a multiple hurdles model. Once you've uh, gone over the hurdle, there's nothing else that you can do to kind of squeeze any more value out of it. Whereas it seems like the psychometric analysis is going to help once you get past the hygiene factors. Would that be a fair way of talking about it? Yeah, I think so. I've never thought of this in this way because it looks like you are, you're having, I mean, that's the internal and the external, which is the hygiene and motivational factors, as Hasbeck call it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, they have two layers, two different layers. Of course, we can understand that there's as also a multi-level model, and you could compare that these hygiene factors are provided by the company, and that mm -hmm. will be the third level, a macro level that you need also to model, and then the second level, the third level uh, would be exactly either the team or the individual. 
So yeah, that, that could be something like this. But but in any case, you still have to, you know, it, as you, you mentioned, a causal model, you still have to create an intervention for this model. So as you can prove mm -hmm. that there's the, the model, that the, the benefits will not be uh, influenced by all the variables, will not influence all the variables. So it depends on whether you're putting them as a DV, a, a dependent variable or independent variable. But causal models could be quite well applied for situations like this. I, I think that, that that's super apt. And um, say, say an organization is faced with like low engagement and they just really have nothing, you know, like, oh, we just got all our employees are disengaged. They don't want to work, this sort of thing. And like to Cole's point, like, what do you do? Like, we'll give them free lunch on Friday. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's like that could be a very periphery issue. Like, we don't give a shit about lunch on Friday. We care that the leadership is not transparent and doesn't work with us. That's the main yeah. issue. Not free lunch. <laughs> don't listen to yeah, Scott. I love a good free free lunch on yeah, Friday. Yeah, it's a bad example. Bad example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll take all the free lunches we get. We love it. it it's, it's the center of the network. Everyone really. <laughs> Oh my goodness. This is good stuff. How, how the hell did you get from Brazil to England, man? Like we, we get yeah. these people on all the time. And like, there, there was a time in my life when I wanted nothing more to live in another country. And I may be approaching that time again. I don't know. But how did you make your way from Brazil to England? Uh, it was quite funny because it, it was, it was not incidental, but in 2013, I, I took a sabbatical leave, a one-year sabbatical leave. Uh, and in Brazil, you can also get a scholarship to study abroad. And then I took the sabbatical leave and I decided to go for a postdoctoral at the University of Cambridge in 2013. And then I spent one year work with, at the University of Cambridge then. But due to visa restrictions and I had to go back to Brazil uh, because I had spent some time abroad on a scholarship. So we have also to pay your time back. And then when I moved back to Brazil, I started my life again. I started to adapt, uh, try to adapt, but then I, I couldn't, honestly. And then in 2016, I was offered another position at Cambridge as a research associate, and then I decided to move for good. I said, I'm going to go back to Cambridge and start to work in the same group, pick up where I left off, and then uh, move on with my life. So that was quite incidental. So I was not planning like you. Uh, so I'd like to live abroad and those things like this, but uh, that happened. And then I decided to, to move based on this uh, incidental I, decisions. Yeah, I, I got it. You got to be smart. I think that's what you just said. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. <laughs> go to Not quite, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I was looking for some visa loopholes so that, you know, Scott there is, find a way there is one. <laughs> <laughs> there is one call. But I'm not oh, tell oh. You breaking news here <laughs> but 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 it's not how no it was not how but what happened was that <laughs> it's quite funny this because after spending nine months at cambridge the second time when i came then i had <laughs> a kind of visa issue because uh i was not sure if my contract would be extended or not because work as a research associate here you are on, not on a permanent contract so you are on a, this, what they call fixed term contract and then i was not sure if i would be uh, have my visa renewed or not and then if not i would have to go back to brazil <laughs> so i'd be expelled so what i decided to do was okay I, and i spoke with the guys that came here at the time and then i said okay please feel free to apply for a permanent position and if you if you find a permanent position you can just go um yeah and that's exactly what happens and then applied to another university called lincoln uh, and then i moved to how, but when I've got to Lincoln, I got a permanent position and then I applied for a permanent visa, which is a tier two visa. And that's why when I decided to stay, but so there was a visa issue involved yeah. at some point, but it was not actually a big issue. <laughs> Do you think that your, your movement around and kind of going between, you know, uh, university-based time and then working with industry-based companies has allowed you to kind of stay at that nexus point between those two? Because one of the things that we find is many academics, and I feel like this is one of those things that's actually increased over time, not decreased. Many academics are just solely focused on academia, whereas like the academics that I like, and I, I believe Scott likes as well, are the ones that can play in both worlds you know, that embody that scientist practitioner model. And I, I really think that you, you embody that as well, Igor. How did, 
How did you navigate that? Yeah, so I, yeah, I've, I've had some contact. So that, let me just go back a few years. So uh, I, I had a chance in the past to be with a few colleagues working as organizational psychologists, but not have any contact with the industry. And yeah. for me, that's the same as, as a doctor not having any experience going to a hospital and seeing patients, for example. So I think that's quite odd if you don't have contact with the industry <laughs> and you're working in a business school. So uh, and then well, that's exactly what happened. So, of course, I was trained to be a junior researcher, but at the same time, uh, I, has all, I have always this mindset that I have also to work with the industry. I have also to understand real life problems and trying to see exactly how academia could tackle these challenges. And that's exactly when I start to have more contact ever since I have contact with lots of companies like Messe, Corniferi, I have consulted for several companies around the world and always trying to understand exactly what the problem is, always trying to model these problems and trying to come up with solutions that could help them out. So that's pretty much what I, I believe. But of course, that's not, that's that's my view. I, I agree with you, Carl. I feel I've got a few colleagues that they believe that you have to work on theoretical models and have to work on on the more theoretical approach. Uh, you, you don't necessarily need to have a contact with the industry, but of course, I totally respect this. But it's not how I approach, uh, you know, organizational challenges. I believe that should the other, should be the other way around. You should try to understand the world and try to bring this to academia so as you can connect these two worlds. Are you, are you going to PSYOP this year? To what? To what? Uh, Society of Industrial Organizational Psychologists in uh, Chicago. Oh, no, no, the PSYOP. No, 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 no. I, I've never been to a PSYOP. It looks really? quite nice. Yeah, I've never been to the PSYOP. Yeah. Oh, fascinating, though. I usually go to the Euron, yeah, which is a conference based here in the European Management or European Academy, but I've never been to the SIO. It's one of the few places where academics and practitioners can really get together in the industry, right? It's yeah. There's not a whole lot of connective tissue across it, which is really unfortunate, sort of things you're talking about there. Where... It really makes it quite special. I mean, it is, it is very rare. You have academic-only conferences, practitioner-only yeah. conferences, and like this is the one point in when those two communities merge. Um and we just convinced our, our last guest, Andrew Pitts, to make the trip over um, from last <laughs> podcast. And maybe can we go two for two? Igor, do you want to come over? We'd love to We'd love to hang out. I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. So where would it take place? It's in Chicago. Is it Chicago? Uh, is it in April? In April. Okay. It's just two months away. Maybe maybe, maybe, uh, maybe up 2025. We'll, we'll get yeah. a session going or something I'll like that. I'll definitely. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do it. Yeah. Uh, just like, just kind of bring us full circle. I got this idea. I like to bounce off you. The idea of like merging, uh, like say gen AI and assessments into like a conversational assessment for employment testing. So as opposed to like a, you know, paper and pencil or, you know, obviously online assessment where someone like answers Likert scales, just a conversational talk to a computer, like an interview, but it's scored. And essentially real time and adaptive and all this sort of crazy yeah. stuff. Well, can I can yeah. I ask so, a question about that, Scott? Because I've thought about this before. Why can't it just use your chats that you have historically and come to the same conclusion rather than having to do a fully new assessment? Like, what, what's what's the the value at? I mean, maybe there's constructs that you had never covered in your previous chats or something like that, but. Like what, what is the value add of, cause one of the things you run into in the assessment space is people just don't want to take the time to take an assessment. That's and so, so there, and so could you do something that like natively scrape the data to, to come to the same conclusion? And, and maybe I'd love to get your perspective on that too, Igor. So like, you're talking about like scraping like your Gmail information to like, no, all no, I'm saying like scraping your previous interactions with the, AI. With, with, with the company. Yeah. With the AI. There's far more, far fewer limitations if you're already talking about proprietary information from the organization, right? Sure. Um, it, you're assuming that it's recorded too. All these sort of in, implications. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, Igor's perspective on this. He's yeah, he's the AI yeah. psychometrician. Yeah, I, I read a paper last year uh, of someone who did it, Damn, but it I was a kind I had of this idea. <laughs> It's like, yeah, exactly. It's always the same. Yeah. So I Cole had this idea. This idea. other guy had this idea. 
<laughs> so yeah, no, I yeah. So she started to work on a chatbot, but to measure personality. And yeah, the final takeaway was that uh, she could come up with the same reliability results. So if you use a psychometric test or a chatbot, you can have the same level of accuracy in terms of predictive modeling and also the same reliability. I don't know exactly the basics because I couldn't read it exactly. And I yeah. you don't have access yeah. to the chatbot because it was. That's another thing about working with industry. Sometimes you don't have access to the codes, but the codes were not provided because they are proprietary. So we couldn't have access to the codes to curate it. But she said that everything was pretty much the same as using a psychometric assessment. So that could be used uh, in place of a psychometric assessment. Yeah, there's a company here uh, that just contacted me that they want also to do something like this. They created the chatbot. It's very conversational, quite nice chatbot. And they start to ask a few questions about your occupation. So what position would you like to apply for? And so what are your interests? And they started with this conversation. And they approached me because what they want to do is to embed some kind of psychometric assessment, standardized assessment, so they could also collect standardized data. So not only having this conversational approach. I think that's the trickiest part, Scott, is how to standardize the results of these assessments. Because... Of course, if I take this test, call, take this test, you want to compare the results. But how can we do this if you're only using GNAI? So I think we can come up with something very nicely. But how can you well, compare results? You probably get to the answer of the emoji question from earlier of like, <laughs> what emojis are going to lead to what psychometric constructs? Just, just give you a smiley face and just move on with life. You also have like the sticky issue of it's yeah. a black box, right? I think that's the big hiring issue with assessments, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. do you want to do a confusion matrix segment? Let's Scott? do. Let's move on to the confusion matrix. The confusion matrix. Okay, you, you're you're in for a treat, Igor. We're gonna do a little uh, research roulette. So the rules are simple. Okay. We have three uh, uh, research studies. One is real, and two are fake. And your task is to identify the real one. If you do, Cole will make you a social media tile, which you can share with your friends and family. Uh, And if you don't, he probably will anyway. So that's the way it goes. Okay. The first uh, research is from the University of Minnesota. Uh, It's titled Swimming in Serp as Easy as Water. Swimming in Serp is as easy as water. It's from uh, the American Institute of Chemical. maple syrup? Uh, Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, American Institute of Chemical Engineers Journal, 2004. So we got swimming okay. in surf. Uh, number two, running in sand versus pavement, the surprising science of speed. Uh, this is from MIT, Journal of Experimental Sports Physics, uh, in mm-hmm. 2001. Sounds more convincing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, article number three, the aerodynamics of jumping in a jumpsuit versus naked. Uncovering the Naked Truth. This is from uh, Cal Berkeley, uh, Journal International Review of Human Movement Science, 2022. So you got swimming in SERP, running in sand, or aerodynamics of jumping in a jumpsuit versus naked. Wow, just based on the titles. Yeah, uh, yeah. Are you sure, Cole? Yeah, you go for it, man. I think the third one is not quite convincing. I'll say it's just, of course, swimming syrup is also something, yeah, a bit far fetched, but aerodynamics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll go for the third one. Okay. Third one. You're going for the aerodynamics of uh, jumping in a jumpsuit versus being naked. Being I, naked. I feel like I've heard about the second one before. Um, and so I think that that one's real. Um, that that's my guess. Okay, so uh, the running in sand versus pavement. Yeah. Uh, both of you are fooled. It is the swimming in syrup is as easy as water. Really? So Edward wow. Cussler, whoever saw Michigan's uh, Michael Hopkins 2004 experiment, University of Michigan, admitted that the bizarreness of the idea is the reason it received funding. So 16 people of uh, varying swimming skills swam in a regular pool and a pool of uh, sugar syrup, syrup, which is twice as thick as water, and the difference in their uh, recorded times was negligible. 
And I, I did a little bit of additional research, and he said that the biggest issue that he faced was actually getting permission to fill a swimming pool full of syrup. Yeah, imagine the drainage issues. <laughs> <laughs> or lack there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like it's like having renters. I I have renters in Austin right now, and they do some imagine unimaginable shit to the house that you would never believe. You're gonna go back there, and they're gonna fill the pool up with syrup. Wait, how the hell did you break the refrigerator door off? Like, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what would you do? <clears throat> that to me, that sounds a little bit like divergent thinking. So <laughs> that's where you um, want to go. Okay, that's where I want to go. Maybe, maybe we can do some nerdery. Um, the nerdery. So I'll tee up the first article we've got on the big five and divergent thinking, a meta-analysis. So this was in the Journal of Personality and Individual Differences by a few researchers. And what they showed is that um, divergent thinking, which is a subset of just overall creativity, um, has a relationship both with extroversion and openness to experience from a big five perspective. However, the, the authors did note that this was a pretty weak relationship, whereas Previously, it's been postulated that the relationship might be a little stronger. However, the the most interesting finding that I saw is that they they mentioned that there's some moderating effects by different types of big five measures, age, culture, the year of the publication. And one of the things that they showed is that there's sort of a curvilinear relationship between divergent thinking and age, which showed that it it was smaller when you were younger. It peaks between 30 and 34 years old and then diminishes in life after that, I would not have expected that. I would have expected early in life, divergent thinking was at its highest point, um, and then it would it would just slowly decline throughout your life. But I don't know. This was this is a fascinating study. Did, uh, did either of you have any reactions to this? I did. I'll, yeah. let, I'll let Igor go first here. Yeah, no, I, I'll say... I was not expecting a linear, actually, Carl. I think it will be the mm-hmm. other way around, because in terms of divergent thinking, so you're not like let's put this way. So in terms of openness to experience and relationships that you have about uh, being trying to be critical about life and things like this, it's more likely that you do over your lifetime, but not at the beginning of a life. So I was expecting some kind of linear. Not a curve, but just a line that will be just going over. Yeah, I I was expecting the same for sure. Yeah. Uh, For me, this is in line with the other creativity research that we've seen. So, what you're telling me is that people that are open and talk to a lot of people, they're more creative. So, they, they go out, collect new ideas, they go talk to a bunch of people, they're able to connect dots that other people are not be able to, con- they're not able to connect. Uh, they're able to think about things in new ways. I mean, this is exactly the same as a bunch of articles we've covered here around bars and creativity. It's a place for people to gather and exchange ideas and, you know, sit there and just perseverate. Uh, Brian, and there's a bunch of 30 to 34 year olds at a bar. Uh, yeah, that's fair too. <laughs> like Br- Brian Uzi and his study about Broadway plays and do they win uh, Oscar awards? The uh, uh, mm-hmm. Burt, I think it's 2020, whatever, uh, around Doctor Who and the uh, vacillation of cast, etc. I mean, this is right in line. It's like, but this is like a very individual level. So an individual person that goes out and collects mm-hmm. these ideas uh, is able to come up with new ideas. Uh, it, it's kind of like if it whenever someone says that they have writer's block, my, my first inclination is like, you need to go read some more. It's not that it's not that like you just like stuck on a page. It's like you don't have anything to say. You need to go out, Correct. collect some ideas and think about this a whole lot more. You need to read, listen to other people with ideas. You need to go yeah. and have experiences for yourself. And it helps to go for a walk. Walks help. <laughs> as far as the curvilinear relationship, uh, I mean, I could see it. I mean, that, that's a that's the point in your life where you have gained a lot. If, if I want to continue my hypothesis here, that you've gained a lot of experiences. You're, you're still talking mm-hmm. to a bunch of people and you're... I'm, um, you know, mentally sharp. I mean, you start declining, you start declining around, you know, 40, yeah. what have you. Uh, and, and you stop talking to people, right? Your, your social network becomes much, much smaller at that point. Uh, other than that, I have no thoughts. Fair enough. 
They're, yeah, there's uh, another interesting thing, which is about extroversion. So there's just a relationship with extroversion. I thought it would not be necessarily related to extroversion, but introversion. I don't know exactly what the effect is. It's positive or negative. But it was I don't know why extroversion. I think openness to experience is very, very likely to have an association with. But extroversion, I, I, why? If I had to guess that's just like a it's two different uh factors so like one like the openness would be like your receptor is open like you you your uh exactly yeah synapse is open and the extroversion is like the motivating factor like you're gonna go collect information from other people i suppose mm -hmm. like you could have high extroversion and low openness that sounds like a terrible person to be around but <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough well <laughs> I don't know. You want to you want to hit the the next one about video versus in person and all that, Scott? Uh, yeah, we can go there. The other one's actually quite similar to this. Okay, one. well, let's go to that one first. Yeah, let's then. go to that one first, uh, just because it's, it's along the same themes in my mind, at least connecting the dots here. Uh, so this is brokering the core and periphery, creative success and collaboration networks in the film industry. So it explores the dynamics of creative uh, success. Uh, and network. So it focuses on the Hungarian film industry from 1990 to 2009 and how collaborative networks influence uh, creative uh, awards. Who's not familiar with the Hungarian film industry from 1990 <laughs> yeah. to 2009? Yeah, I Igor, hit me with your top three Hungarian films. Never. What you got? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, <laughs> they introduced the concept of uh, core and periphery. So the core is that uh, tight knit group with uh, privilege, etc. And on the probably prestige, and on the periphery is like the people that don't get engaged that much, but they kind of like out there sort of personalities. Uh, and the findings show that uh, bridging from the core and engaging the periphery increases the probability of success. They also have this kind of intriguing uh, gatekeeping index, so to quantify how much bridging takes place. Uh, but overall, it highlights the uh, role of bridging in networks in the film industry. What do they mean by gatekeeping, just out of curiosity? Uh, it's like an index of essentially just being able to go out and identify. Uh, it, it's an index okay. uh, of bridging. Yeah. I, I think it's fascinating that... Um... You know, if somebody was solely on the periphery or solely within the core, that that they wouldn't have, you know, I, I think of this, maybe this is the wrong frame of reference, but like the periphery folks are like the indie films. The core folks are like the big blockbusters. Yeah. And if you stayed in your lane, you would be more popular. But it's fascinating to see that when you're bridging those boundaries, that's when you see the biggest kind of hits that happen. And so that that was that's really cool. Yeah, you, you really need both. And like this really came up in the uh, Burt article, uh, Doctor Who, I think it's 2018, whatever it was. But the, the highest, if you have nothing but indie artists, you wind up with absolute trash, right? <laughs> they have all these like wild, like avant-garde ideas and people are like, they sit around like they're like their wine. They're like, mm, yeah, that's, that's A bunch insane. of divergent thinking. Yeah. Insane. And yeah. on the other end, you get... Uh, uh, I, I don't know, wh whatever the latest rom-com is or like another like Transformer movie that is exactly the same as all the other ones, right? But you need both to come together. Michael Arena talks about this in his book, Adaptive Space, essentially engaging the edge or something like that. That's fast. That's exactly what I was thinking about. It's like, if you're, you've got to be covering enough new territory <clears throat> to make it interesting but it has to have enough grounding in like things that most people like common experiences that they can share that it's not just showing a video of a, you know, a plastic bag spinning in the wind <laughs> like they do in American beauty. Like American that's beauty. a little too yeah, avant-garde, yeah. but it's like, it's, it's built within a shared kind of narrative that we have. And I, I love that. Yeah. You know, like Michael talking about being on the edge that that's exactly where my mind was at. It, what do you think Igor? Yeah. I haven't read the paper, but it looks interesting. So it's kind of social network analysis. So I, I truly believe in what you're saying, but uh, it seems that they really keep this bridge and they, they're good connectors. And perhaps it's gatekeepers are always those who have access to more people, to have more, you know, contacts, have more power within the network. And that's why they, they're also able to make these connections between the peripheral and the central. I, I think about this quite a bit. So I gravitate through these sort of studies. So I'm, I'm starting to connect my own dots and like seeing like a 
consistent theme in these sort of things, whether it's at the individual level, like this is a big five personality article we just covered is like just another piece of the puzzle. And this is just another one too, like very similar results of this sort of like vacillation structure of going out, collecting ideas, and then bringing it back to the core and refining them. It's like, you just see it over and over and over. Yeah. What's the, what's the worst movie yeah, you've perhaps. seen recently? The worst movie we've seen recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me think. I usually just turn them off. So I do most of my movies via streaming. Yeah, and yeah. if I can't make it past five minutes, you know, we're done. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the beauty of like Netflix, right? They give you a, a bunch of movies, but they're all kind of trash, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're all like oatmeal, you know, like they're just enough to get you by. <laughs> Well, fair enough. Why don't we hit on the last one, Scott? <laughs> this <laughs> give hey Igor, hit us with a great Brazilian movie. Is is there one out there? I can't I can't remember the last time that I watched a Brazilian movie. So, oh gosh, ah, there was a there, there is a good one. Uh, I don't know if they have any translation for that, but it's it's from the northeast of Brazil. But it was a long time ago. I can't remember. We're not very good at the at industry of films. It's a shame. We've got the Argentinians are quite good at this, so they yeah. usually go to the Oscar, but not the Brazilians. It's a shame. Oh, that is a shame. Who, who's, yeah. who's who's better at soccer, England or Brazil? Ooh, controversy. Controversy. Now I can't say that. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I've got your passport. I've got your passport. I can tell you. We we all know the answer, so we we're like we'll keep exactly. going. Hard hitting yeah. questions here. Yeah. Okay. Th this is this is really intriguing. Uh, this is actually a really old study. I'm I'm writing a uh, book chapter on network analytics, and I was trying to hunt down this sort of research, uh, and I can't believe that more people haven't done this. Uh, but being there versus seeing there, trust via video. Uh, so how long does it take to develop trust? Well, it may depend on the sort of medium that you're using. So these researchers uh, got a got groups of folks to engage in these um, uh, like prisoner dilemma sort of tasks where they were rewarded if they essentially cooperated. And they had them in four different conditions. So one was face to face. One was video only. One was or, you know, video and audio. The other was uh, audio only. So essentially telephone. And the final one was uh, text only. So email based. And the findings show that face-to-face -face groups develop trust almost immediately, right? And the lagged effect was followed by video, audio, and then text. And it took about 15 interactions via video to engender the same amount of trust as one face-to-face -face interaction. It took about 26 audio or phone call interactions uh, to develop the same amount of trust as face-to-face. And uh, for text, the answer is go fuck yourself because it never <laughs> developed as high as the level of trust of <laughs> one face-to-face -face interaction. <laughs> Don't do text is, is what I get. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I get that, man. Like, I get people that, you know, lob stuff over the fence at me, you know, just via text. You're like, hey, no way, man. What this does from my perspective is – it brings about the justification, which we all knew before the pandemic, but then like it became like this like political football, which is sometimes you got to get together in person to build trust. And so yeah. having these offsites that maybe you have, you know, once a year or once, you know, every like two quarters or something like that makes a lot of sense because you can establish trust so much more quickly. And then there's the whole video versus on versus video off on like Zoom meetings. And I actually have a question for you both. Like in my mind, cause I'm a video on guy and I think it's because I want to get to that trust quicker. And I think we all just kind of know this when you get into a video call and then the other person just will not go on video, but you're on video. <laughs> doesn't that feel like the most like passive aggressive thing that a person it can is. do? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> totally cool. I totally agree with you. So I feel uncomfortable. And what I usually do is also to, to switch off my camera. So it's, it should be a two-way street. So if you're not showing yourself, I'm not going to do the same. So I'm going to also, I'm, I'm stopped broadcasting myself. So no, not going to do it at all. I agree with you. Yeah, but that also brings back, I think it puts in perspective a few things in terms of remote working. And I agree with you. 
So uh, I think companies should meet at least, you know, every quarter or six months or so, so yeah. as we can build trust. Yeah. And also, you know, it's different. It's just I I I'm a hundred percent in favor of remote work, but every now and then I think we should get together and to have some lunch, discuss a few things. Just yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, build build that trust, and then you can like maintain it through other forms maintain, of meeting. Yeah. Should you need to, just yeah. imagine if you had like a new person start on your team, and they only communicated to you via text the entire relationship. <laughs> like, first of all, how would you know they weren't in AI? Yeah. You know, now yeah. nowadays. But second of all, like, would you ever feel like they were a real human being? I, I just I don't think human beings are capable of that, really. I mean, is this the Gen Z world we're like entering, right? Maybe. Don't they Maybe. just only back no, to emo emojis only? You the Gen Z is going to have text to video because Sona just came out. So, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be an issue anymore. Or just get your uh, headset on, your Apple Oculus or whatever it's called. and Yeah. Dive right into the metaverse. But I, I think for, as, as far as this goes, though, everyone seems to find their link that agrees with them for return to office some people like find links as like oh yeah because i, I want to be in the office other people find the link that says that remote work is the best thing on earth because of you know x y and z but this this is done before the pandemic there's way before the pandemic and granted it needs to be done again because yeah. the the technology is just enhanced since then well, that's actually, I mean, I think I told you this before the podcast, Scott, like that's why I trusted it more mm. is because it wasn't, you knew that since it was before the pandemic, that there wasn't like some secret motivation behind the researchers to skew the results one way or another to fit whatever narrative they're trying to talk about. And so I actually think that that, that makes it more trustworthy, not less. My only concern was that if it was too long ago, the video applications were just terrible back then. Oh, yeah. Right? And so if like we're talking about like old, what was that like go to go to meeting? Do you remember go to meeting? Like I think this was a precursor to like WebEx. Um, like those video quality was terrible. <laughs> I had a camera. Oh my, I, I could go on a different story. But it, we'll just say I had to use an old camera to mm -hmm. do a job interview in like 2016. And it was like, so, you know, you stop. It's like this like lag, like one frame per second, this sort of thing. So distorting. For sure. Or yeah. could use Skype. Yeah. Do you remember Skype? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think Skype is now what Microsoft Teams is, right? Like, I think that's what they, because they got bought by Microsoft at one point. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But who that's knows? I mean, that was, that was so long ago. Um, it doesn't really matter at a certain point, right? But, um, Cole, Igor, this is, yeah, Cole, Cole says you're a uh, guitar guy, right? Yes, I play the guitar every now and then as well. Yeah, I'm I'm good at singing, much better at singing than playing the guitar. I usually play the guitar just to follow my singing, but yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of musician, not professional musician, but yeah, I try. In the past, I I would go for a few gigs in Brazil. Really? Yeah, do some. <laughs> yeah, but just not professionally speaking. So it's just yeah. <laughs> do you like? Well, since you since you wouldn't answer the soccer question, who's better at guitar, Brazilians or people in England? <laughs> I think they have different styles. Different styles? Do they have more soul? Yeah. Uh, I think he is more rock-based, whereas Brazil is much more, I don't know, MPB and samba-based. So it's just a different way of playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. So it's more melodic in Brazil. Here, I think it's a bit harder. But it depends because it also goes back to the post-punk era, uh, like the Kia. Now we're talking oh, my language. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, Smith is among the bands. You can see how it's a very nice melodic rock. So and I love this part, this period. Uh, are you, are you a fan of Sepultura? How do you know Sepultura? Yes, yeah. yeah but Sepultura yeah, yeah. is not is not melodic rock. Sepultura is is metal it's, rock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're going to deep cuts today. Ever everyone Google Sepultura roots? The song is called Roots and uh, scare your roots children. Roots, ruts, bright, ruts, buddy, ruts. <laughs> All right. Well, I oh, think wow, uh, he, 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 he nailed it. Now. He nailed it. Yeah. <laughs>
I think we've officially exhausted uh, the, the formal part of the podcast. So, uh, Igor, it's been fantastic having you on as a guest today. Scott, any final words for Igor? Uh, I- Igor, you're a psychometrician. Uh, rate us on a scale from uh, one to brilliant. That's more than brilliant. Oh, I oh, love there it. There you go. More, yeah, than, th- more than thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> we got Just silly two defects. Thumbs up. Two thumbs, Two thumbs up. up. Yeah. We'll Let's see it. if it does anything. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All there right. we go. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, you've, uh, Igor, this has been awesome. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Igor Menendez. Uh, thanks for joining us, Igor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bye bye. Hey guys, Direction and Correct is dedicated to you, our listeners, to help educate and entertain you on how to effectively do people analytics. By supporting this podcast, you are helping us continue to provide valuable insights and knowledge to our listeners. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes or at patron.podbean.com slash Thanks for your support.